Hello, welcome to Caregiver's Haven, a podcast helping families who are caregivers of a loved one with a mental illness gain peace of mind. Even though this is a podcast focused on family caregivers of the mentally ill, much of the discussion can be helpful to any caregiver. Your host is Sandra. She is a family caregiver sharing her lived experiences and hopes to provide education, support, and resources to other families. Hey, caregivers, how are you today? I'm so happy to be here. And, you know, I'm going to ask you the same question. Are you taking some time to rest, relax, and rejuvenate? Remember, we can't pour from an empty vessel. We have to take care of ourselves so that we have the energy to take care of our loved one. I'm so excited. Today, we have Jennifer Fink here with us. She calls herself the caregiver to the caregivers. After helping her mom, who had Alzheimer's for 20 years, Jennifer wants to share her knowledge with other caregivers. In May of 2018, she launched the Fading Memories podcast. And she's here today to share her caregiving journey with us. I'm so so excited to have her. Jennifer, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Now I can hear you. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. I I follow Jennifer on Instagram. I've listened to her podcast and um, I follow her on Instagram and she has these three beautiful golden retrievers. And so I always get excited when I see her post that has her dogs in there. It reminds me of my dogs. They're so cute. And she also shares stories about her mom, but I love her dogs. They're my secret social media weapon. <laughs> yep, they're, they're they're very eye-catching. So um, this month is Caregivers Month. And so every month, Jennifer, I've had caregivers come on and share their caregiving journey. And I also heard that it's Alzheimer's Month, which I didn't know because I thought it was last month. I thought it was September. But I guess in September, it was like World Alzheimer's Month. But this month is our National Alzheimer's Month. Is that correct? That's what I've heard. I'm going to have to get all those dialed in myself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's what I saw. And I also saw that they use the color purple to show support. And for Caregivers Month, um, they also show use purple to show support. So um, I was, I'm just happy that I was able to grab you and have you on before the end of the month so that we can celebrate Caregivers Month and Alzheimer's Month on Caregivers Haven podcast. So thanks for being here. And so um, can you start off by telling us who you are a caregiver for and what illness they had? My mom had Alzheimer's for 20 years. Her mom had what I believe to be vascular dementia. So this would be my maternal grandmother. She had in the mid nineties, a brain aneurysm that leaked for three months. Mm. And they didn't think she would survive the surgery. It was like a 5% chance. And they didn't really discuss what might happen with my grandmother. If she did survive, she did. Cause you know, my whole family's ornery. and she went down the same kind of path that my mom ended up on you know the forgetting how to eat and all of those things that happen with people living with alzheimer's and just just to add a little extra yay for my family history 
my maternal great-grandmother also had senile dementia, which is what they called it back in the day. She died before I was born, so I never participated in caring for her. So I didn't take care of my grandmother per se. I did help out occasionally, um, but she wasn't super close by. Mm -hmm. I was... I worked with my parents. We had a family business and it became apparent that my mom's daffy moments, as I called them, were becoming more frequent. And as regular mm -hmm. listeners of my podcast know, she would take orders from clients with no due dates, no directions, you know, nothing useful to get the job done. Oh, wow. And it was very easy to dismiss those, especially that started about the summer of 95. She was 52 and a half and it was, she was off on Wednesdays because she had a women's service club meeting. So on Tuesdays, she would take these orders that would be due on Wednesday with no directions or due dates. And the client would come in and we'd be like, oh yeah, hi, um, er, uh, oops. <laughs> And she wouldn't be there because she was off that day. <laughs> exactly. Wow. And it's easy, you know, obviously you're in a, a busy store or an office and the phone rings or somebody else comes in, you put the order down and then you forget about it and somebody else picks it up and is like, what the heck? But it mm -hmm. happened more often. And I don't remember the exact year, but there was, we had employees who would always get to the shop first and I would look through the the i would look through all the orders like what needs to be done today and i'd get everything organized for the day i believe the employees probably noticed that she had these quote unquote daffy moments because they would you know we had this was a photography studio and one hour photo lab and they mm -hmm. would print all of the orders but they wouldn't punch the wallets out you know there was eight on a page or two five by sevens they'd need to be obviously cut apart you know, packaged up and put in the pickup drawers for the clients. So they would get it like 95% done and she would, you know, then I, we would have to do the other 5%. One day mm -hmm. I came in, I looked and I was like, great, you know, there's one of these orders. I didn't catch her chit chatting with the client, which if I had heard her doing that, I would go out to the front counter and be like, oh, so, uh, what are we doing for Sandra today? You know, I try to be like nonchalant. <laughs> and that way I didn't have to call people and say, oh, you know, I didn't understand my mom's directions or, you know, try to kind of bluff my way through. Right. And I was probably frustrated because that was just an annoying thing to have to do. And I held it up and I said, what am I supposed to be doing with this order? And she looked at it and she goes, I don't know. That's such and such employee's handwriting. Now she and the employee did not have handwriting that was similar at all and i looked mm -hmm. at it and went oh fun and that's when i told her this had to be somewhere 2002 2003 and i told her you're starting to have more and more daffy moments you know you used to have a couple a week now you're having two or three a day and i'm i'm starting to get really worried and she looked at me and she goes well i don't want to end up like my mother turned on her heel and stomped away from me and i thought well oh <laughs> uh, so so she may have noticed something too, but just didn't want to, she was in denial because she didn't want to be like her mom. Exactly. And we never yeah. had conversations as a family about what was going on, what we should do. I believe my dad, who was her primary caregiver for, you know, 15 years at least, 
I believe he was pretty typical and, you know, just dealt with it. He, you know, would, he had a lot of coping tools, reminder tools, you know, she, he hated the way she Christmas shopped. She would go to the mall and search for gifts for me. And then a different day, she would go to the mall and search for gifts for my sister. Now, my sister and I are polar opposite personalities. I do not know how we are biologically related. <laughs> so I can kind of understand why she would do that. But seriously, is, is it really that difficult to switch channels in your brain? Right. You know, it's like, oh, Jennifer would love this, which means, of course, my sister would totally not. Or right. the other kid would totally love this, which would mean Jennifer would totally not. It's not that hard. So right. that's how she shopped and, you know, whatever. She didn't ask him to go with her. So it really shouldn't have irritated him at all, but it did. As her disease progressed, he would do things like order things online, print out the pictures, write who the gift was next to it. But I believe he really felt that, you know, he could handle it, handle it, handle it, handle it until I think he was between his chronic illnesses and her advanced Alzheimer's, I think he just really gave up because that's pretty much what he did is he just, he gave up, his kidneys were failing. He didn't want to go back on dialysis. He didn't tell anybody that he needed to be on dialysis. So we went right into caregiving for the two of them. Like most of us end up in a big state of emergency. So it was not fun. That exactly. Was, that was four years ago, uh, almost this week, the 29th of November, 2016. Mm -hmm. So you said your mom, um, so she had it for 20 years. Isn't that a long time? Isn't that longer than like the average time that someone has Alzheimer's before the end stages? Yeah. And I think she actually could have lived longer, but she fell and broke her leg at the beat, you know, in March, March 8th. And that was just one, one thing too many for her body. And that was March 8th. She broke her leg. She passed away on March 31st. I had commented numerous times I was ready for this journey to be over. And when it was over, I was like, well, holy crap, I guess I wasn't totally ready. <laughs> right, right. You're not the um, you're not the first person who has said that. And sometimes people have a lot of guilt from thinking that or, you know, wanting that. But every to be honest, everyone just gets tired. Everyone gets to their point where they just feel like they can't, you know, take it anymore. Mm -hmm. But then when it happens, we change our minds. <laughs> so I have um, a lot of the after guilt, like, you know, I tried really hard to do nice things for her during the holidays, last Christmas, obviously her last Christmas, but Christmas 2019, our city park has two dozen Christmas trees that are decorated by various local businesses, groups, charities, what have you. Most of them have some type of theme, like if the Alzheimer's Association office was in my town, which it's not, they might decorate it all in purples and silvers and stuff that would represent the Alzheimer's Association, but still be pretty for Christmas. There was one tree that had basically, it was from a local pizza parlor, so they had great big um, homemade cut out pepperonis and slices of pizza, not typically very Christmassy, but I like pizza, so it was kind of a cool tree. And we went and we walked along the path, which was like a fabric over the lawn. And she was, mm -hmm. her, her visual processing was so bad that whenever the terrain changed, 
she would almost cartoonishly spin her arms and she'd almost go into panic uh, even though she didn't have balance issues. It's just like what her brain saw, what, what her eyes saw, her brain didn't process properly. So mm -hmm. I'm pointing, I mean, we've got dozens of trees, at least 24, and I'm, you know, taking her along and I'm showing her the stuff. I would take some of the ornaments off the tree and hold them up really close to her. And I later learned that it was probably super overwhelming because she kind of shut down on me. And it was so frustrating because I'm like, I'm trying so hard. And, you know, like, why can't you just like enjoy this? I'm not, ex I'm not ask asking for appreciation or any, anything for myself. I just want you to enjoy it. And I remember thinking, you know, that I didn't do enough. But after mm -hmm. she passed away, I looked I looked through all the pictures and videos that I had done of her and I realized I did a lot, you know, was it perfect? No, but nobody's perfect. So it was kind of a wake up call to actually look through all of the stuff that I'd taken. I realized when, after my dad died, that if we didn't do pictures of her, she would disappear from the family history and I didn't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's a challenge. Yeah, it it sounds like it is. When so for those listeners out there, in case they some people don't really understand what Alzheimer's is, um, especially when you're comparing Alzheimer's to dementia, which Alzheimer's is a form of dementia, but it's different. And dementia is not really an illness; it's kind of like symptoms. And people, I know a lot of people get that all kind of mixed up. So for our listeners out there, can you kind of explain to them what Alzheimer's is? Well, it's a shrinking of the brain. So they, they call it atrophy. And it was very interesting because at her last neuro neurological appointment, neurology appointment, that's a better word. They said, well, she's got like moderate shrinkage. And I thought, how much more could it shrink? Because as they progress through the disease, it's not just forgetting memories, like what you had for breakfast or your relationship to this particular person that's standing in front of you. She always thought I was her best friend, mm -hmm. which was actually quite easy to accept because I had lost a tremendous amount of weight as she was progressing. So what was in her memory wasn't the person that I looked like, well, now. Uh -huh. But eventually they forget how to use the bathroom. She, you know, they forget how to dress themselves you may stick them in the shower and they just stand there looking confused. Which mm -hmm. my, it took two people to shower my mom because she wasn't super willing to have help. <laughs> they mm -hmm. forget how to eat. It just, it gets very, very ugly. And one of the reasons yeah, I'm a huge advocate for showcasing what late Alzheimer's looks like because people need to understand what their family member might be going through, what their neighbor might be going through, their friend, because it's not just forgetting where the car keys are or somebody's name, which I forget all the time anyway, <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, what you had for breakfast that morning. When you can't remember how to get dressed or, you know, how to take a shower or, you know, she would, one of the things that it was a little bit difficult to, except is she my mom would obviously the care staff in the residence that she was in would you know 
give her a shower, wash her hair. And they obviously didn't have time to style it dry. And obviously there's also some risks with using a blow dryer on an older person. It would be really easy to burn them and then they could get violent. So it's like they didn't bother with blow drying her hair and she would comb it straight down. And it was just, eventually she didn't even look like my mom. I mean, she did, but she didn't. Mm -hmm. That was really challenging. Yeah. One of the, um, I know one of the things when I talk to people about Alzheimer's is exactly what you said. Like you put them in the shower and they don't know how. So with dementia, it's a lot of memory loss and forgetting things. And with dementia, it's it's forgetting things, but it's forgetting the purpose of things. Like you might have keys in your hand, but you don't know that those keys are to unlock a door. Or like you said, you'll get in the shower, but you don't understand that I'm in the shower to wash myself. And that's kind of one of the key differences that, that I noticed between dementia and Alzheimer's um, or senile dementia or, you know, old age dementia, as some people call it. That's one of the big differences, which is, that's huge. That's, that's difficult. That's hard. You know, um, some of, like you said, forgetting how to eat, like those are just basic activities of daily living and they just completely forget how to do any of that. Some people, which is why they, which is why they need a caregiver. Well, some people have a real serious personality change. There's a gal also mm -hmm. following me on Instagram and she's taking care of her mom. Now she's a much younger person than me, which kills me because you know, I don't think 20-somethings and 30-somethings should have to stop working to take care of a parent, but that's a whole different podcast conversation for another day. Right, right. And her mom has gotten very, um, verbally violent is probably a bit of an overstatement, but she yells and she gets very angry and yells and swears and it just, a lot of times this gal, you know, she, she lets it bounce off of her. She kind of shakes it off, but you know, that's really hard when somebody says nasty things to you out of the blue, like all of a sudden they wake up and they're just in one of those moods. Right. My mom didn't get like that. She would get like that. If you, she would, she at the very, at the end. So about a year ago, even earlier this year, she would she used complete sentences or complete words and she made complete sentences, but they didn't make any sense. There was no mm -hmm. historical or grammatical context that you could like hang logic on. And if you uh -huh. scrunched up your face, like trying to figure out what is she trying to tell me, which I had originally thought of as being respectful, she would get really angry. It's like the scrunching up of your, her, your face, my face triggered an anger response and I kind of learned why that happened when I posted a video of the two of us at Pete's coffee and tea and she said something and I looked at the camera was in front of us leaning up against the window and I looked at the camera and kind of rolled my eyes and then I shrugged my shoulders like this is it was, it was supposed to be a non-verbal of I have no idea what she's saying oh, well, that's Alzheimer's. That was what was going through my head. Somebody on Instagram saw it and she's like, this makes me so sad that you're so angry with your mother. And I thought, angry, is she insane? Mm, and I, so I looked at it again through what I tried to, you know, through this commenter's eyes. I'm like, I'm not seeing anger. So then I turned off the sound 
and just watched my face looking for anger, looking for anger. And I never saw it. I chalked mm. it up to this gal being kind of a little overly sensitive. She had lost yeah. her grandmother who was also verbally abusive. So I just kind of chalked it up to that. But one day I made that face. She'd been, my mom had been really chipper and happy and chat, 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 chat. And she said something really wacky. And I tried to put it into context with what she'd said before, which was stupid on my part. And she immediately went into mad at me. And I thought, whoa, she's seen this expression of confusion as anger, like that person on Instagram did. Yeah. <laughs> so it took a lot yeah. of personal strength not to not to ever make the huh face or the what was she talking about? You know, scrunching up your face, like thinking yeah. face. <laughs> it's kind of hard to describe. Yeah. yeah. So so it sounds like there was about seven years from when you first noticed things until she was actually diagnosed. And then it sounds like your dad was a primary caregiver for the first um, 15 or so years. I'm, I'm guessing you and your sister helped during that time. So what, as a caregiver, what was your biggest, biggest fear in the beginning, in the beginning of that diagnosis? What was your biggest fear as a caregiver? Well, she never, she didn't get diagnosed until mid stages. By the time she was formally diagnosed, it was ridiculously late. She was, mm. she went through all the testing to donate a kidney to my father in the summer of 2008. She was denied being a donor because of cognitive impairment. So I was like, there we go. Got a diagnosis. Yeah. Well, after my father died in March of 2017, I was mom's healthcare power of attorney. So I was at the doctor with her and I had let them know ahead of time when I made the appointment, when we showed up for the appointment, multiple times reminded them I needed to see her diagnosis because they never talked about it with me, and I assumed my sister, who's younger, and I was shocked to find out that it wasn't 2008 she was diagnosed. It was September of 2011. I was like, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. Now, when you figure September wow. of 2011, she passed away March of 2020. Generally, from diagnosis to death is two to ten years. So she was at nine, eight and a half. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I assumed incorrectly that she had about two or three years left. She had just turned 77. She still walked. She still talked. Up until the very, very end of 2019, she seemed to have very little problems eating. That became more of, much more of a problem from New Year's Eve till she passed away. And the care staff mm -hmm. didn't, they just rolled with it. Because there's a lot of issues with, do you use thickeners? Do you feed them? Do you do this? And there's a lot of conversations about prolonging their dying and not providing a uh -huh. quality of life. But it's hard to know, like, how, what, at what point are they starting the transition, the labor of dying? And that's why they're not eating. Or are they not eating because their brain is broken and they forgot? So it's a, I, I've actually right. have done an episode on the end, the end, the, well, end, end of life. I have to come up with a better, mm -hmm. better title than that one. No one to listen to that one. And it's actually really, mm -hmm. really 
fascinating because it's very difficult to notice the signs of the transition into the last weeks or months of your life because the dementia or the Alzheimer's hides it. Mm-hmm. So what, so what was your biggest fear during all that, during all the getting diagnosed? And it all was that? hard to know how to help. My dad didn't, he was like my mom didn't accept help. My sister would make freezer meals. So she and a friend would get together once a month and do all the prep work. And then there would be like a, a frozen bag of like stew that he could throw in the crock pot and warm up and various slow cooker meals. And I Mm -hmm. did what I could, but they really didn't want help. So it was, I kept stressing about how do I help them when I'm 20 miles away and I have my own career and I have my own family and dad's not asking for help. It was, it was that constant stress of I should be helping, but I don't know what to do. Right. And I I think that happens with a lot of people, even um, even for someone who wants help, you know, people still don't know what to do. Um, one of the, um, I can't remember which podcast, but, or maybe it's on one of my checklists. I talk about, you know, write down what you need help with ahead, you know, ahead of time. So when people ask, you'll know what to, what to say, you'll know how to tell them that they can help you because a lot of times people want to want to help, but they don't know how to help or you know, the people think they don't need help when really they do need help. So that, that I think a lot of people struggle with that. So along with your biggest fear, what was your biggest frustration at the beginning of all this? That they didn't, ex- or was that was it the same what thing? What was denial? I mean, when, when you mm. hold up an order that you, your mother has written out and she's saying, no, that's so-and-so's handwriting and so-and-so has, you know, loopy handwriting and she had angular handwriting and then she gets angry at you. It's like, why am I putting myself through this? And there was a point, mm-hmm. I believe in 2012, I could hear the, the, you know, the exhaustion and the frustration with my dad. My dad's fuse was way too short. She would ask him, mm-hmm. what are we doing? And he'd say, we're going out to lunch with Jennifer. Oh, okay. Five minutes later what are we doing? And then he would just explode. It would just be anger. And that bothered me a lot because then she would get pissed off at him. And it's like, none of this is helping guys. And I didn't want to be a marriage counselor, especially with somebody who didn't have, (laughs) you know, kind of had a broken brain. So I I started searching around for an adult day program for her. And the only one that was close was probably about seven or eight miles away, but you had to pass, well, they lived across the street from an elementary school and you had to pass an elementary school, high school, junior high, and the community college to get to this place. So I had talked to them and they said, well, she could come in as late as like pretty much an hour later than they normally started. So I talked to my dad and I said, you know, I've talked to whatever the gal's name was at this place. And this is the the activities they do. I think this would be really beneficial for mom because she would have, you know, she'd be around other people like her. So it would be very relaxing. There's mental stimulation, social stimulation, and you'd get a freaking break. And there, you know, you can go one day a week because at the time it was like 85 bucks 
And I personally thought my dad always talked like they had no money, even though their home was paid mm-hmm. for and he had investments. I knew he'd invested a lot in the business that we had together. So I, you know, they weren't super open about all their finances, which is pretty common. And I knew he wasn't going to want to pay $85 a day, five days a week. That's pretty pricey. But I thought, you know, if you just have one day a week where you drive her over to this place and, and then you can do whatever you need to do, or you can just go home and nap, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And he Rest exactly, absolutely refused. He wouldn't even go talk to them because I had set up everything. Mm-hmm. The next step was to go take a tour and yada, yada. And I knew at that time that she was, she was at the point that it was very beneficial for her, but if we waited much longer, it would be like dragging a two-year-old to preschool, <laughs> except mm-hmm. not mine. Mm-hmm. My two-year-old told me that we could leave. <laughs> <laughs> now my two-year-old is 29. So <laughs> it was, it was just like, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to do what I can. And it was like banging my head on a wall. So it got to the point okay. where... Right. My hair salon is in their hometown. So whenever I had a hair appointment, I would make sure that I'd spent time with them. And that was like once a month. And sometimes their doctors were over by my house. So if they were over that way, they would come have lunch with me. And that was the extent of the help that my dad accepted. I think it was 2015. Might have been 2015 or 2016. I was putting up. Halloween decorations. So it must've been late September, early October. They came over, they had doctor's appointments. They showed up at my house, like almost an hour early, which threw me all for a loop. And my dad flops in a chair and he goes, your mother needs new bras. Can you take her shopping? I'm like, <laughs> okay. You know, I'm like, I'm much more equipped for that than you are. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, went, so then he, so he finally accepted some help. Not really. It was more like, I can't, I'm not dealing with this. You deal with it. So I took her to Target. I needed to get something there anyway. And it was pretty much the closest place where I could acquire said undergarments. And she just, she refused. She's like, I don't know why. And I said, dad would like me to help you buy X, Y, Z. So let's just do this to make him happy. Nope. It was like two stubborn two-year-olds all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, so what, um, so normally, so now that you've shared your biggest frustration, your biggest fear, normally I ask people, what is their biggest fear of frustration now? But since your mom has already passed on, I'd like to ask you, looking back as her caregiver, is there anything that you would do different? I have learned a ton this year from my guests on my podcast. So I wish I had I wish I had been aware of all of the educational opportunities and groups, et cetera, that I could have learned from that would have made everything for me probably a lot easier. So that's one thing I do advocate a lot is have these conversations early. I think that when you were talking about making a list of the help you would need, that was a post I put on Instagram last week. (laughs) Oh, wow. So it's, it's a very good message. And those are the yeah, kids. I have that on my checklist yeah, too. Yeah, it's it's like my husband and my daughter and I. We've talked about it. We know what you know. My wishes if I get Alzheimer's, my husband doesn't think he's at risk, even though yes, he is. And we basically know that it's curtains if we get Alzheimer's. 
Mm. And I actually have coming out the second week of December is a talk with a gentleman that created an Alzheimer's living will. So I seriously suggest people check that out because it does lay out what to do with somebody at the end of their life when they Mm -hmm. can't tell you. And some, you know, you might have disagreements with your siblings. No, mom's at the end of her life. No, she's got more blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm sure you know how those conversations with family can go. So that's the first thing I wish I had done. I, I really wish I had known a lot more earlier on. It would, have, it would have made it a lot easier to provide her with the adventures, the little joyful trips we took out watching children in the park or at the pool. Or I would have realized that looking at 24 different Christmas trees was overwhelming. And that's why she shut down and got nasty with me. You know, that's not really mm-hmm. a Christmas memory I would prefer to have. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, in between your podcast and my podcast and this year, a lot more caregiver podcasts have popped on the scene. So there's so many ways of getting information, even if you're caring for a loved one in your home or their home and your time is just, there's just not enough of it, which all of us suffer from that. But family caregivers of people that, you know, they're in the home with them, their time is so short that these kind of podcasts to me are just invaluable. Yeah. One of the things you said that I, that I stress to a lot of people is gaining knowledge is key. Education is key. Um, Learning about the illness and then coupling that with finding support groups helps every, helps it, helps make it easier for everybody. Um, I, I think those are two key things. I agree with you on that. Well, and self, so I, I self-care have, is not selfish. Sorry. <laughs> self-care is not selfish. And like what right. you said is it helps everybody. So if you're helping yourself be, you know, more loving, more patient, more tolerant, they're going to have a better quality of life for longer. And that's what we all want. It's pretty simple. Right. And you're not, you're not going to get to that point if you don't have the knowledge and that, and that's, you know, a lot of people don't even realize that they are a caregiver, which means they don't realize that they need to be practicing self-care. Yeah. <laughs> so then they never, they never get to that. They're just, they're running on frustration and fear and anxiety. So um, it, it's difficult. And all... I have two quotes here that I want to okay. read to you. One says, Self-care is not about self-indulgence. It's about self-preservation. And that's by Audre Lorde. And the other one is rest and self-care are so important. When you take time to replenish your spirit, it allows you to serve others from the overflow. You cannot serve from an empty vessel. And that's by Eleanor Brown. So since you just brought up self-care, I wanted to read those to you. And tell me, what do those, as a caregiver, what do those quotes mean to you? Well, the second one, we... When we're helping somebody, whether it's, you know, my husband and I are Rotarians and we might, we pass out dictionaries to every third grader in our city. And that's so joyful. The kids love it. And even in this digital age, you think, well, the kids really don't need a dictionary, do they? And they love it. And we get the best thank you cards. When you reach your hand out to give, you can also receive. But if you're so exhausted and stressed and frustrated, you're going to have a very difficult time reaching out to give, which means you're not going to receive. And unfortunately, 
exhaustion and stress are toxic to our brain. So if you want to keep your cognitive health, you better make sure you're taking care of your physical self because 65% of caregivers end up hospitalized or deceased before the person they're taking care of, like my dad. And right. most of the time, you know, people don't plan ahead for the caregiver to go first. You just assume the person with Alzheimer's will go first and then you're in a bigger crisis. So we're the ones that are living. We're taking care of somebody who is very, very slowly dying. And I think if we keep that in mind, as, as sad as that feels, my responsibility to my mom was not to prolong her life, but to make sure she had as much quality of life as possible for as long as possible. And when somebody else has to shower you, and help you toilet and dress you and feed you. That is not a quality of life. And so we have to right. really understand that we're still living. And if we give up our life, even though we think it's temporary, it could be it could be far longer than we think. And then we just burn the candle at both ends. And then we're no good to them or ourselves or anybody else. Correct. And I've actually heard, you said 65%. I've actually heard that statistic even higher, uh, um, as high up as 70% of, um, and I actually read that not only do they get ill, a lot of um, caregivers become mentally ill with anxiety and depression, like actual diagnoses, um, just from not taking care of themselves. So self-care is so important. And it's very difficult. Which is why I very, I'm very, (laughs) it's why I advocate strongly when your loved one or you or both, when you get a diagnosis or a suspicion, because we all know that diagnosing a cognitive problem of any sort is, it takes forever. Write mm-hmm. down like what you do every day. You know, you make meals, you, you do chores, you do laundry, you go to the grocery store, somebody's got to take care of the yard. Maybe you've got a dog that needs walking. All of those things are just daily living that we all need to do if we want to live. And then you add all the caregiving on top of it. So make this list of everything you do and, and start writing off. It's like, hey, you know, there's a, a young teenage teenager next door. Maybe they can mow the lawn. Maybe the, the old lady down the street who's just retired. I don't want to say old lady, but the person that just retired Maybe they can come, you know, have tea with my wife, you know, one or two afternoons a week so that I can take care of paperwork or make phone calls or take a nap or whatever. And then as you're, you know, when you start putting that team together, they're familiar with what's going on. You're not trying to bring in somebody when your loved one needs to be showered and taken to the bathroom and dressed and is aggressive and swearing or scratching like that's a that's not the best time to bring somebody new into the situation. So I am a big advocate right. of putting your care team together and that doesn't necessarily mean somebody that's going to be hands-on with your your spouse or your parent. It's people who help you navigate all of the things we need to do in life. I've talked to caregivers who are out of state that make phone calls to insurance companies, doctors offices I can't do that stuff like two minutes on the phone with those people. And I'm ready to roll bombs through doors. My hu- I am dead serious. <laughs> My tolerance for that is, is almost non-existent and I'm, and I'm aware of it and I know it. And so when it was 
doable. My husband, who is a real estate broker who had to deal with the banks during the foreclosure crisis and all the banks on the East Coast would be like, we need an answer by XYZ today. And it'd be like, I just got up. Now I have like 90 minutes to get back to these people. And you spend 87 of, of those minutes on hold. You know, he would just go about doing whatever he needed to do. I would have been like unglued angry by minute seven, you know, just <laughs> my tolerance mm -hmm. for that is not good. So he would make those calls. And once it got to the point where they realized that he was not really an authorized person, then he would like basically put the mm -hmm. phone on speaker and we would talk to the person together, which generally kept me from losing my cool. <laughs> and somebody that if you've mm -hmm. got a, a mm -hmm. child that lives across the country or an aunt or whatever, a friend, you know, there's a lot of things people can do that aren't hands-on day-to-day caregiving. Right, right. So I, I love that. I love that um, idea of putting the team together ahead of time, you know, delegating some of those chores, especially ahead of time, because, uh, you know, I don't know what the thing is. A lot of caregivers, they love to care for others. They love to give, give, give. But when people offer them help, then they say, oh, no, it's okay. You know, I think we know what a burden it can be, and we probably don't want to feel like we want to be a burden on anyone else. So I think just knowing that that's part of caregiving is putting together this team. Um, I love that idea. So in, in addition to that, are there any other um, lessons learned or any other suggestions that you can share with caregivers, like just to help encourage, motivate and inspire them? Anything else um, other than what you've already said? Mostly to reiterate, definitely care team earlier, the better because we have no idea what tomorrow will bring. If 2020 has not shown us that our hellscape bingo card is full, then that I kind of mm -hmm. equate mm -hmm. caregiving that way. I mean, I never figured somebody lived 20 years with Alzheimer's. There's one other person I've, I know of, I haven't met them, whose mother lived for 30 years. Now, maybe they go backwards and say, oh, okay, well, she has Alzheimer's. She was diagnosed in 95. But we start, now we can see that we saw signs in 1990. I don't know if that's the case because I have never heard of anybody more than me. I was always the champion at my support group because I was the youngest, but the person who had Alzheimer's the longest. I always felt like I should get a prize. <laughs> so you have no idea. You could wake up tomorrow and something happens, like they break a leg or something goes wrong. I mean, part of the aging process is our bodies just cannot cope with one more injury, one more, you know, minor illness. And that's when everything just kind of goes haywire. I just experienced that last week. My oldest dog was doing great and then he wasn't. And I don't have three dogs anymore. Sorry. Sorry to break it to you. <laughs> oh, wow. Just from talking uh -huh. to you the other day? Oh my gosh, that's so sad. Thank I'm sorry you. to hear that. And that's a perfect example. And planning ahead really helps. And I'm going to do an email. New, part of my newsletter will, is going to talk about this, but I'll share it with you guys here first. Planning ahead, you know, Sandra said she's a planner. I'm a planner. So we're both probably going bonkers with this year because can't plan anything. It's very frustrating. The dog mm -hmm. needed to go to the vet on my birthday, which was Tuesday, last the 17th. My husband does meals on wheels. He said, let me call so-and-so. He can take over my route. I said, you know, 
it doesn't take you that long. Just go do your deliveries. We had a special, it's a wonder fold wagon. If you Google it, it's this incredible wagon that's designed for children, but it worked great for geriatric dogs. We put him in the wagon and I hightailed it up to the vet. It was almost two miles, but I got my workout in. The dog enjoyed the roll. We got to the vet on time. And I kept thinking, you know, because we had things in place to make caring for this geriatric dog easier, it made our life a little bit easier. And I rolled that dog to the vet twice last week. <laughs> and it's just, mm. and I kept thinking, you know, if we plan ahead, you know, like the Boy Scout motto, I think, I was never a Boy Scout, obviously, is to be prepared. Be prepared for anything to happen. They could wake up in a nasty mood and swear and curse at you, or they could wake up and jerk away from you and fall and break their leg and three weeks later they're gone. It's just you never ever have any clue what tomorrow's going to bring. So the the more team that you can put together, the more knowledge you put together, the better off you'll be able to to, to weather all of these storms, which we've had in abundance this year. <laughs> yes. Yep. Absolutely. So, Jennifer, I have really enjoyed you being on the show today, and I really, really hope that you will come back and visit us at some point. Um, you have so much knowledge and so much experience for all the other caregivers out there. And one of the things I'm finding out with, with my podcast, with Caregivers Haven, um, it started off as caregivers of family members with a mental illness, because that's that's what I am a caregiver for. Um, my mom is also elderly, so along with that. But what I have found is that I am helping caregivers with all different kinds of illnesses because the caregiver, it doesn't matter the illness that you're caregiving for, the caregiver um, experiences all the same issues, all the same challenges. We, we are a group within ourselves. It doesn't matter um, the diagnosis is what I'm finding out. So I really appreciate you. Uh, helping fam other caregivers out there, caregivers in general, and also caregivers of uh, families who are taking care of someone with Alzheimer's. You are very um, knowledgeable in that. I thank you. And for all of you caregivers out there, I hope you um, heard some of her tidbits that she gave out, you know, planning ahead, being prepared, and gathering your team together ahead of time. And, you know, just that's that delegate, you know, delegating. When I talk about that, asking for help, we can't be afraid to accept help or else we're not going to be able to continue. And remember, we cannot serve from an empty vessel. That is so true. So, yeah, yeah. So, Jennifer, thank you. Um, and again, Jennifer's podcast is Fading Memories Podcast. Um, she, you, do you deal with mainly Alzheimer's on yeah, your podcast? It's basically, that I've, it's a, let me think, I'm changing the tagline. It was um, a supportive podcast for those caring for a loved one with memory loss. And now it is basically information, inspiration through conversations with other caregivers. So like what we're doing today. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, because you're probably finding the same thing that I'm finding is that caregivers, we all have the same challenges. We all have the same issues that we're dealing with. Um, and it's mainly just learning how to 
um, love ourselves just as much as that loved one that yeah. we're caring for so that we can remember to care for ourselves. I think, you know, that's, that's, a, that's the biggest thing. So, well, we're going to end now, um, and I'm hoping Jennifer will come back, and I hope you really listen to all these tidbits she gave us, and um, we can move forward and continue to be great caregivers. And please hold for a moment for some important... Sandra is a registered nurse, and many of her guests are healthcare professionals. However, this is not a professional podcast, nor are we associated with any mental health counseling. Please seek help with a professional provider if needed. You can reach Sandra by listening to the podcast on the Anchor app and leaving a message there, or You can DM her on Instagram at Caregivers Haven. If you enjoyed listening to Caregivers Haven podcast, please favorite, subscribe, or follow on your listening platform. Okay, guys, thank you for listening. And until next time, Caregivers Haven is wishing you peace of mind and happy Caregivers Month.